our associate pastors bringing the word tonight. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your blessings upon us. We think about all that you've done for us this very day and so much we could not even account for that we're ignorant of that you do for us, watching over us and keeping us, sustaining us. Now, Lord, we come to hear from your word. You said that not one word of this would fail until all be fulfilled, not one jot or tittle. And so may we give ourselves over to it tonight. Would you open our hearts and minds? May we concentrate. May the Spirit of God, who moved upon men of old to pen these words, may he be our teacher and guide, as you promised he would be. And the Spirit of truth has come, that he would lead us into all truth. Now bless us tonight, we beg, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Brock. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Daniel in chapter 3, and that's where we'll be this evening. I'm always grateful for the opportunity to preach, and I thank Pastor Lamb for this opportunity, and, and do not take it lightly. And I'm grateful for our church. I love our church, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to have the privilege to bring the Word of God. And I pray that the Lord would use me this evening uh, to bring food to the table. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 opens up with very familiar verses for all of us when we are admonished by Paul that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And that is our calling in this present world, uh, to be light, to be salt, uh, to grow in grace, uh, to live a life that is distinctly different, uh, that would make others ask of us, what is the hope that lies within us? What is it that is different? The goal is not to be different itself, but the goal is to love Jesus Christ with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. And when we do that, we will be different. And so Paul says there in verse 2, he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is our calling, believers, brothers, and sisters here at Glen Iris, is to prove the acceptable will of God uh, in our lives. We'll be looking at a familiar text. Probably everyone in this room is familiar with this portion of Scripture, and it happens to be, along with the book of Daniel, one of my favorite um, it's the story of these three young men uh, who were cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And we see uh, the, the presence of God uh, in their life. What God is doing here is Babylonian, and the text has been read just a couple of minutes ago, but Babylon is the world reigning power uh, during this time. God is judging his people. And uh, they have gone away in their hearts because of idolatry. And God has brought Babylon to bring judgment upon his own people. They had been warned about this. Israel has been told what they were to do and to follow the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul. But yet their hearts have been wholly given over to idolatry. So the Lord judges them by bringing in King Nebuchadnezzar and conquering his people. And through a, through a series of deportations, they are taken back to Babylon. And so we open up in this text and we wonder what in the world is going on. We see immediately, if you read all the way at the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold. And then we see throughout the text there how the, the height of this statue, that this image that he builds, is 90 feet tall. This unbelievable a statue. And so it opens up, and we may wonder why this has taken place. In, in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Daniel prophesied to King Nebuchadnezzar about a statue, a vision. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And he had questions about it, and Daniel was the only one who could answer or interpret this dream for him. And this ability was given to him by God on high. What's interesting about this vision is that it did not change Nebuchadnezzar's life. 
Nebuchadnezzar may be one of the saddest figures in not only all of history, but also in the scripture, in that he saw firsthand mighty moves of the Lord Most High, and yet his life was not changed. He even had, a, in a sense, false uh, repentances, where he would bow down in front of all the people and declare, this truly is the Lord High. This is the Lord God, the only Lord. But yet it did not make a difference in his heart and in his life. So Nebuchadnezzar sends his people, and they begin to go into Jerusalem, and through a series of deportations, they begin to take out the best and the brightest of the, the young people. And so one, one way that historians call this, what he was doing, was subjugation through assimilation. He wasn't just going to annihilate them. He wasn't just going to just kill them all, but he was going to use them uh, as he thought was best. And so he would take Daniel and his friends and others, many others. He would bring them into Babylon and send them to his personal school. And as we read in Daniel chapter 1, we see where immediately Daniel and his friends refused to bow down and to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar's desires. And we see God blesses them for this. As we move into this text, we see that Daniel is, is not present in chapter 3. And so we'll get to that in just a minute. But we see where Nebuchadnezzar brings in these young people, and he begins to try to assimilate them into the mindset of what it means to be a Babylonian. In a generation or two, uh, if all goes according to his plan, these young men will lose their distinct culture and their values that have been instilled within them. This will happen over time through a series of small compromises, in a sense. Although they were Hebrews or they were Jews, they will essentially become Babylonians in their mindset and in their values and in their life. And as we mentioned, one of the great mysteries of this chapter, one that I've always wondered is where was Daniel? We can assume, we can speculate, but the Bible doesn't give any real clear uh, instruction about where Daniel was during this time. But we do know this, if Daniel had been present, had, if Daniel had been there, we, he no doubt would have been right there in the middle with his friends standing up for the Lord because that's, that's what his pattern was and his courage that was given to him by the Lord. So he's not mentioned. And as already been here in, in a couple times mentioned in this book is Daniel is the most prominent figure. The book is named after Daniel. But in this chapter, in this specific portion, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have the, the limelight in a sense. The scripture turns the direction to them and their lives. And we see, first of all, the challenge that they face. Their life has been upended. Everything they have known has changed, and, and they have been brought into a foreign land. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 38, we see where Nebuchadnezzar interprets this dream. And then in this present text, we see how Nebuchadnezzar immediately builds this image. If you look at the end of chapter 2, it's kind of amazing how fast this happens because we see where Daniel interprets the dream. And then in the opening verses of chapter 3, the image is already built. And so the description of this image is that it is an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, instead of humbling himself before Almighty God, instead of humbling himself in repentance and faith and turning to the living God, this dream called Nebuchadnezzar, caused Nebuchadnezzar to become filled with pride, visions of grandeur, his desire was to build a kingdom based upon his glory and not the glory of God. Babylon was a pluralistic society. Um, oftentimes, when they would bring in these, these conquered peoples, they would not do away with their gods. They would simply accept their gods. And so over and over again, Babylon's increasingly, increasingly becoming a, a pluralistic society. And so they didn't reject, in a sense, Daniel's God. They just brought him in with everyone else. 
So this, this statue is built, and when chapter 3 opens, this is placed into the plain of Dura. Now, the dimensions are odd to us because the scriptures describe this statue as a 90-foot statue and about 9 feet wide. And I was thinking in my mind's eye, that had to look pretty odd. But in keeping, historians say this was in keeping with Babylonian architecture. This was their style. But then notice how the text says in the plain of Dura. This was a specific place, not by accident. The plain of Dura was a flat stretch of land between two mountains. And so it was placed into a a natural arena of sorts, a place where many people could be gathered, a place where there would be echoes and sense like that where people could hear what was taking place. So when the image was ready... There was this great dedication to this image or to this statue. Dignitaries from all over the empire would come, and they traveled, no doubt, at great expense for the glory and the acclaim of Nebuchadnezzar. After being covered in gold, we can imagine this 90-foot statue being completely shining, and when the sun of that desert sun hit it, how it could be seen probably for miles and miles and miles. So this was a big deal. This wasn't just a little get-together, just a couple of people with a coronation and uh, these young men having a place of esteem in the government being there. This was not just a couple of hundred people. This was a huge event. In verse 4, we see how the herald proclaims the instructions to the thousands. And if you read through the text, it can actually be a little bit of wearying reading about every single dignitary that's there and how it repeats itself. And and there's a little bit of sarcasm you can sense when it lists every single instrument and every single position of of the people who are there. But verse 5 tells us there was an orchestra present. By all indications, these instruments are from different people groups. For, For example, we can see from some of these listings of the instruments that the Greeks were there, the exiled Jews brought theirs to the table, the cornet and the flute. Uh, Instruments from Persia were present. And so again, we see that there's all these people. This is not just an isolated small group, but this is a challenging situation that they are facing. And they realize we're going to have to take a stand for our faith, whether or not we like that. Now, what is unseen here is the parents. It's unseen. Because the Bible tells us very clearly that these are young men. But there's no mention of their parents. We don't know whether the parents were brought along in the exile. We don't know whether they were left behind. All we know is that these young men walked and feared, walked with and feared the Lord. If you will take the time to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it will be well worth our time as we lay a little bit of a foundation here into their thinking, into their faith, and just to be reminded of the words that they followed as they feared the Lord their God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. God gives the very clear command to his people that they are to be distinct. He is their God. They are his chosen people. We see this in a very clear instance here in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 where he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine head. And they shall be frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Maybe by your front door, or maybe inside your front door, or maybe on your walls you might have special Bible verses or meaningful verses. We're in a great tradition there. God's people did the same thing and were commanded to. 
Maybe the, you have the well-known verse, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What a wonderful verse to have, to stake a claim for the Lord our God. Verse 10 continues, and it says, And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. As we are all very well aware, as we study through the Old Testament, as you read through the scriptures, Israel's constant battle was that they turned, their hearts would be turned from the Lord their God over and over and over again. They had one job, in a sense, and that was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. And he said, beware, lest you get full of life, unless you become blessed with all the blessings that you have not done, but that have been given to you, and you in your hearts be turned away from the Lord. Verse 13, you shall fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shall swear by his name. You shall not go after other gods, of the gods of the people which are round about you. For the Lord thy God, notice here, is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Now, we could keep reading through that passage, but I believe that is sufficient to give us an understanding. These young men were trained in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they feared God. And what a beautiful thing. What a great example for you and I as we think about living in this age that God has, has placed us in. We, you may joke about desiring to, to, you've missed your era in a sense. You know, maybe there's another time in history that you wish you could be a part of, and we, we understand what people mean by that. But, but this is the chosen time for us. This is the generation of them that seek his face. And so we often, every single day, must guard our hearts and say, Lord, what do you have for me in this age? I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to waste an opportunity. I don't want to waste anything or miss the message that you have for me. And we see a great example in these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see there in verse 14, back in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Is it true? Now, when we, we may minimize this thinking this is not a big deal, but it is a big deal. Imagine the reigning emperor, the reigning ruler, asking you in front of thousands of people, are you not afraid? Are you not scared to do what I have commanded? History tells us Nebuchadnezzar was a man that was very easily angered. He would kill people on the spot. His reputation was renowned. He was someone that did not have self-control. And so Imagine someone with these proclivities, and he's staring at them. And he asked them, are you, in a sense, where is your fear? And what's amazing here is this, these young men fear the Lord more than they fear man. The reason we fear man so much in our lives is because we fear God so little. When we see these grand and glorious visions of who God is in Scripture, but not only see them in Scripture, but experience them in our lives, in, in little ways, answered prayers here and there, we, maybe matters of prayer where we've been asking the Lord to do something only he can do, and we see that answered. Those are huge confirmations to our soul of why we should fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom. And these young men obviously have had this grounded down into their souls. And so their parents are to be honored and to be mentioned, even though they're not here in the text. This was not by accident. So Nebuchadnezzar asked them, have you not bowed down? Are you not afraid? Is it true that you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? I would submit to you that this image represents more than just Nebuchadnezzar, but represents many things. It represents many gods, represents the pluralistic society that Babylon was known for. And it's interesting how as these best and brightest peoples who are conquered from all over the empire come, they begin to bring their gods with them. And so when we think about it in light of that, Nebuchadnezzar's command was not so much, you know, I'm asking you to reject your God and bow down to me or my gods alone. It's I'm asking you to worship all of the gods in addition to your God. That was the request being asked of them. Nowhere do we see the mandate that the true and living God cannot be worshipped in their lives. Uh, But it's simply, it's going about it the way Nebuchadnezzar prescribes here or demands. And so when we think about it like that, what they're saying is, is something that we're very well acquainted with in our modern day. And it's this, hey, you can worship your God, just leave him at home. Worship our gods as well. You know, your God is so uh, exclusive. He's so narrow. Have you ever heard that? We've heard it and we hear it. And it's true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man could come to the Father but by me. The way is narrow. Broad is the way to destruction. And so they have a very difficult decision to make here, but they have no problem making it. Today in our life, our society asks us to do the same thing. Each one of us have different jobs, different occupations. And when we hold our silence, when we do not live out the faith that God has called us to live out in, a, in, in grace and in truth, uh, we, we do great harm, not only to our great God, but to our witness. And in a sense, we cave in to this same type of pressure. And so these boys knew that, no, we can't worship other gods. God has made it very clear that we're to worship him and him alone. And by capitulating and by doing this, we will ultimately forfeit what it means to be monotheistic, to worship God and him alone. Society regularly lays down the rules for us. They don't want to know what the Bible says about marriage. They don't want to know what the Bible says about exclusive specific areas in our lives. And as these things are being discussed in a public forum, they want us to keep our mouth silent and not to bring up what we know to be true. What is the truth of Scripture? And to bring those ideas. But we cannot be bullied in that sense. We cannot. If that happens, as I'll quote Bonhoeffer, it is, it, is, it is evil to be silent in the face of evil itself. We must speak up. And so we have to stop and realize, where is our voice? God has given each one of us a voice. God has given every person in this room a way to serve him in our unique areas. And so our prayer must be, Lord, help me not to be silenced. Help me to have a voice that will will speak truth into the, the different areas that you have called me to, that will not be arrogant, but be present the truth in grace and in love, but yet very firmly, thus saith the Lord. As Christians, we have principles by which we must live and work by. We are commanded to live honestly and with integrity. We're not trying to barely stay ethical, barely get by, but we desire to glorify God greatly and to glorify His name. 
some ways that we may be forced in our jobs is maybe to be, uh, to be motivated by greed, profits only, or money, 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 or just whatever it takes to get into the black if you're in the business world. There's all types of things that are said but yet not said, and many of you know what I'm talking about. It's just do whatever it takes to get the job done, but yet you're not being told to do anything wrong, but it's implied you will lose your job if you don't do whatever it takes to get the job done or something like that. We must draw very firm and clear lines for ourselves spiritually to say, Lord, I desire to live a life of honesty and integrity. I desire to make much of Jesus and, and to make most of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it means that my job goes because of my faith, Lord, help me to have wisdom and discernment, but help me to take a stand for you. The principle here that we can learn is that silence means approval. And so these young men are faced with a temptation to just keep their mouth shut and to go along with the crowd. And that leads to the second point here is that the compromise that these young men refused. That these young men refused. One day you and I are going to look up and our lives are going to be, in the clearest way I can, I can say it, near over. If the Lord gives us a long life and a full life, we will be at the end of our days, and we will look back over our life. And I hope when that time comes that we won't see a series of short decisions that were small compromises that led to a great abandoning, truly, from living in the fear of the Lord our God. Each day, you and I have subtle temptations to do, just do one thing. Just no one will know. Do this one thing. You know, no one will see it. But yet when we do it, we sin against the Lord our God. And this is the compromise that these young men refused. This was not a moral dilemma to the other exiled Jews. And we need to be reminded of this. This was only the dilemma to these young men. At least they're the young men that's mentioned in Scripture. The very reason we need to be reminded is that these Jews are being judged because of their idolatry. This is the reason, because of moral compromise, that they've been brought here to Babylon. And so the other Jews, there's other young men, there's other people there, they've already given in. There's no dilemma for them. They've already eaten the king's meat. They've already eaten the meat that was offered to the idols. They've already fully just agreed and gone with the flood tides of the culture. And so this is the very reason that they're there. But the dilemma is for these young men. Are they going to ruin their conscience over this decision? And what we can be encouraged by is that God always has a remnant. Now, our example ultimately is always Jesus and Christ, but we see much to emulate in these young men's lives. Their main identification was never to anything to do with these false gods. The first commandment that God gave to them was the most important commandment that they cultivated in their hearts and lives, that they would love the Lord with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their mind. Excuse me, their mind. And so, what a great example, that they were not afraid to stand alone. They refused to compromise. And I would submit to you, compromise is the hardest thing to reject because it is so easy. And the reason it is so easy is because you and I don't regularly apply and mold our lives to Scripture and have very clear things that, that are clear in Scripture. And we say, if nothing else, we will not give up this. One reason why that maybe happens is that we're not regularly called to live this way. We, we live in a society that is one of ease. We're blessed. Even the worst days that we have are nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters go through across the ocean. Um, 
until you go, and many of you have, until you go to some of these places, you realize our bad days are great days. We don't have bad days. They don't exist in America. And again, I'm not minimizing our pains and our trials, but on large scale, you and I are so blessed. And the reason compromise is so easy for us is is that we're rarely called to stand for our faith. In fact, when we stop and look at it in the light of history, in comparison to others, what you and I give in over is so minuscule and embarrassing compared to what our brothers and sisters in other countries lose their lives over. And yet, you and I don't want to be laughed at, and so we won't speak. Or um, some of the shame we may go through, because we're not going to be in the it crowd or whatever, uh, is, is embarrassing compared to what our brothers and sisters in Christ, when they take a stand for Him. And so I think, in my opinion, that is why it is easy for us to slow, slowly compromise in our daily life and to lose the fear of the Lord. Totalitarian regimes have told Christians throughout the centuries that they must conform to ungodly demands or die. And guess what? That's still the case today. Slaughter of Christians, of brothers and sisters in Christ, takes place every single day. And we must take a stand. And when we do, we stand in a long line of godly men and women who dared not bow before Rome, who dared not bow before Nebuchadnezzar, who dared not bow before anyone over the Lord their God. So you and I must ask ourselves when we think about this compromise that they refused, are we willing to stand out? These young men were three and, I don't know, 30,000, three and 300,000. They were not afraid. Scripture tells us of others, namely Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 24. The Bible says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Excuse me, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He did not compromise. Even though it came immediately, he chose the fear of the Lord for the long term, esteeming the the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who is invisible, which leads us to how do we do this? How do we refuse compromise in our daily life? We see him who is invisible. Now, there's a term for this. Uh, Today, we hear everybody saying these, these common suggestions to us in our life. Well, everybody's doing it. Go ahead. Everyone's doing this. This is what, this is what happens. And so when we find ourselves in positions of isolation, or we're going to be the only one to do what's right maybe in the situation, that is when it is the toughest. But that is when we find whether or not it's truly real in our lives. So we we have these daily um, situations that will happen to us, and so we must find our convictions rooted in Scripture and having an eye on Him who is invisible. That leads us to, number three, the confidence that these young men possessed. The confidence that these young men possessed. During the Reformation, the reformers coined a phrase, or at least popularized a phrase, a Latin phrase called quorum deo. Quorum deo means living life in front of the face or in front of the eyes of God. Every aspect of life. To give a more exact definition, it's living or to live one's entire life with the understanding that it's being lived in front of the presence of God, under the authority of God and to the glory of God. That is powerful. And when we think about how our eyes are upon the fear of the Lord, and we're to live life quorum 
Deo, in light, in the eyes, before the light of the eyes of a holy God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing, wherever, we, we're, wherever we're doing it, we are doing it under the almighty sovereign gaze of God. We hear the verse often from pastor, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Thou God seest me are familiar refrains in scripture. Daniel chapter 2 verse 28 just says it very specifically. It says, but there is a God in heaven. And this aspect that you and I are created by this creator God is what changes everything. We are accountable to this God. This reality defines all that we do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're to remember him not only in the, the days of our youth, but in our middle age, and our old age. All throughout this fear of the Lord. And this is what gave them. This reality is what gave them confidence. We see, first of all, letter A, the power of God. Notice how they have power, the confidence in the power of God when they say, The God whom we serve is able. First of all, they feared the Lord. They were able to take this stand because of the knowledge of the presence of the Lord. But then notice their trust in his ability. They said, the God whom we serve is able. And of course he is. Our God is able. Who is a God like unto our God? The God who can forgive sins, who can change and break the power of sin in our lives. Our God is able. Then secondly, we see their trust, their confidence in his purpose. And this is something we don't want to miss. Their confidence in the purpose of God. Notice how they say, but if not, his will is utmost. They said, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us if it be his will. And if it is not, we're still not going to bow down. We're still not going to compromise. We're still not going to give in. And so the Bible tells us here that these are young men of principle. This is precise faith. This is exact faith. There is no wavering here. And they, like Daniel, as we see in the opening parts of the book, purposed in their heart before the time came. They knew what their decision would be. And folks, brothers and sisters, that is the secret to give, not giving in to temptation, of not giving in to compromise when it presents itself in a real-time way in our life or as we're, going, as we're blindsided, so to speak, is to already know what we're going to do, what we're, the decision we're going to make. Is this in line with Scripture? Are we going to echo what Joseph said? How can I sin and do this great evil before the Lord? And so this resolve, this purpose in their heart makes these young men very mature in their faith long before their age. They're young is what the scripture says, but their faith is a very mature faith. And what a great example. And in a sense, if you analyze what they're saying, what they're saying is, is we love God. We fear God, not for what he will do for us, but simply for who he is. They've experienced his grace in their lives. And they say, we love him not only for what he gives to us, or not only for what he can give, do for us, but we love him for who he is. And we trust him with an absolute trust. Spurgeon has a comment that's very similar to this. He says, your duty is to do the right. The consequences are with God. I love that. Our job is so simple to live in the fear of the Lord and say, Lord, we are little lambs. We need a shepherd. We need wisdom. We need discernment. I thank God every single day that James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and let him ask in faith and he will give it liberally, overflowing. And so these young men are not afraid of dying because they know the Lord and that they are safe with God. We see, fourthly, the companionship 
that they enjoy, the companionship that they enjoy. Now, this brings in the text, this brings something that I've always wondered about, is how is it when the angel of the Lord appears upon the scene or when God appears on the scene, how is it that they always know it's him? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar says here. The Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast these three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king. And he answered and he said, But wait a minute, lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now how would he know what the Son of God looks like? That's something I've always wondered. The only explanation I know to give is that when God appears upon the scene, there's no mistake of who he is. That all will know. And so we see that taking place here. He says, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, theologians tell us this is a theophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Appearance of Christ. And all throughout the scripture, from Genesis walking through the time of the incarnation of Christ, Christ came in pre-incarnate ways to reveal himself to his people. And almost, in a sense, not almost, in, in a message saying, I'm coming. Don't forget, I'm coming. The promise has been given. We live in a fallen world. This is a Genesis 3 world. This world is not how God made it. And we know that. They knew that. And in the Garden of Eden... God gives this promise of saying, I will send a Messiah and he will come and make all things new. And so what we see here is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Some other examples of when the Lord did this, just to name a couple, was when God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18. When God appeared to Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. Uh, when he revealed himself to the people of Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. When he revealed himself to the elders of Israel in Exodus 24. Uh, to Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, and other passages. These are all examples of when Christ came in a pre-incarnate way. And each one of them tells us something about who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the ultimate appearance or manifestation of God the Father to us. So they were not only in there walking around, but there was a fourth one. And that fourth one was Jesus Christ, or like the Son of God. In the Bible, furnaces and fire are types and metaphors for trials, for tribulations, for pain, and for suffering. One thing most of us know by now is that all of us are going to suffer. If you're not suffering right now, you're about to suffer. If you're not about to suffer, you're just exiting a situation to where you, you're, you've gone through a really hard time. That's just, just the world that we live in. Somehow in our mind, we have this idea that that life is supposed to be comfortable and easy. That we're not supposed to have pain and suffering. But yet it happens anyway. And yet in our mind, we still have this mindset that we're trying to constantly escape things that hurt. Job chapter 5 or 7 says, Man is born of trouble as the sparks fly upward. It's a very true statement. And so if we live at all in any measure in this life, we will face hard things. And so we may hear comments like this. How do we answer them? I've, I've, I've lived a good life. I've, I've done what's right. I've, I've tried to obey the Lord and follow the Lord, and, and then he rewards me with this. How, how would you answer that? How do we answer that? How do we answer the whys of our experience of why the Lord allows us to go through hard things? We don't always have answers. 
The Bible tells us we're to weep with those who weep, we're to mourn and empathize and to reach out and to pray for and to hug and all of those things. Those are things we can do. But ultimately, we rest in that Jesus lived the perfect life and suffered more than anyone ever suffered. He never sinned, never did any wrong, and yet he suffered, and he did it willingly. What an example we have in Jesus Christ that we can look to our Lord and our Savior and see that he suffered for us and that we can grow in Christ through whatever it is that God allows us to go through. As I close this sermon, I point to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. And the Bible says that the trial of your faith is being much more precious than of gold that perishes. Though it be tried with fire, the trial of our faith, the trial of our experience, though it be tried with fire, might be found into the praise and glory and honor at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Your heart has been consumed with him, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." As the fire makes gold more refined, so suffering makes us more like Christ. The furnace is given to us here for whatever reasons. This is the punishment that these young men went through. But the beauty is that the Lord Jesus Christ went into the furnace with them. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his famous sermons called Christ's Agony in the Garden, lays out and unfolds in a very specific, clear way that part of Christ agonizing in the garden was that he could see God's wrath coming down upon him in a matter of time for our sins, for our iniquities. And his agony, the weeping, the, the, the bleeding from his forehead, all of those things that Christ would ultimately go through in the furnace of God's wrath. And what's beautiful about that picture is that he did it for us, but then again, he does it with us. We pray that, Lord, will you pull us out of the fire? Will you bring us and just help us to escape this pain? And God doesn't do that, not in this life. Sometimes he heals. But what's better than that is that the Lord Jesus Christ not only can empathize with our infirmities, but yet he walks through pain and suffering. He walks through that fire with us. Jesus suffered not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we become more like him. As we think about this idea about God has called us to live in a, in a firm way for his glory, for his honor, I pray that the Lord would mold a group here, and I know this is Pastor's desire in our church, who knows what it's like to feel the power and presence of God. Our family, our church family does a wonderful job of coming around others who are, are going through affliction who are walking through pain and trials. And the beauty of all of that is not only that we can witness their faith being strengthened and that we can encourage one another, but is that each one of us can get a testimony that says the Lord has ministered to my soul. He is transforming my mind like the Lord Jesus Christ into the image of the, the manifestation of Christ in this world that he wants me to be. Very lastly, we see the confession that these young men witnessed. And we close with this chapter, and it is oh so dangerous. The end of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a, an unbelievable declaration. And if you've ever read anything by Charles Dickens, he sounds like one of these characters in Charles Dickens' books that is constantly pontificating, but yet his words have no meaning. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. 
He sees the power of God. He sees the Lord doing unbelievable, unbelievable things. And yet his heart has not truly been changed. In verse 28, the Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. Notice his words. He delivered them. It's all about what's happening over there. But this is not a personal testimony. He's, it's simply objective. He has sent his angel to deliver his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Well, what else is he going to do? He's just been shown up in front of hundreds of thousands of people. Therefore, I make a decree that every nation, people, and language that speak anything amiss against this God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut into pieces. Well, that is in keeping with Nebuchadnezzar's ways. Unfortunately, what Nebuchadnezzar does is he glorifies God's great name, whether or not he realizes it. It is a confession. It is an amplifying of what God has already done there. And as we close this lesson, I would pray that God would make sure that each brother and sister and child in this room would know in their deepest parts of their heart that they have been converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not enough to see what God has done. It is not enough to be around great things that the Lord is doing. We must rest in simple faith for ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by grace that you are saved. It is through faith, not of works, that any man should boast. It is simply simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's scary is, is in the New Testament, Paul writes about Demas. And he says about Demas, he says, Demas has forsaken us for this present age. You know what's scary about that? Is Demas wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Demas was one of us. He was once right here in the pew next to us. He was right there next to Paul, laboring with Paul. And Demas, at a certain point in time, forsook for this present world. You know what? You and I might be Demas. We may not be. Only we can know in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, Coram Deo, in light of the eyes of God, living every aspect of our life, not just what people see in public, not, not the outward form, but the inner man, where only the eyes of the Lord can see our true faith and our, our willingness to not compromise, but to stand on principles based on God's word of saying, Lord, it's for your glory and your glory alone. I'm not worried about what I may get from it. I'm not worried about what the, the punishment I may receive. I will abandon all and follow after you.